This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladayan. Alright, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. Out of, yeah, I was gonna do my usual, oh, out of all the, I, you know, I don't have the time to be self-deprecating, folks. You know, uh, if, if you've listened to the evolution of this show, you've probably heard me getting less and less self-deprecating. And it's because it, it takes too much energy. So I guess the show's entering its purest form. Anyways, we have a great show for you today. Our, our guest, um, he's a fantastic author of a book which all of you should go right now and buy. And I, I'm not just saying that because he is on the Zoom call with me. But it's a fantastic book called Alt Together Now. Uh, he is also uh, quite friendly with another guest we've had, Susan Ryan. Very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> Some would even say married. Please welcome Jim Ryan. James Ryan. James. Jim. Uh, call me uh, Jim. Don't worry about it. How, how are you doing today? Well, this isn't the worst apocalypse I've lived through, but, you know, okay. you take what you can. Yeah. It's... At this point, nothing in 2020 is surprising me. Mm. It's just, I, I, I just look at the headlines and it's like, okay, so we're doing that now. Okay. Yeah. You know, it, it all adds up. And somewhere down the road, uh, the forces that be will take a look at it and say, yeah, here's what I did. And the other one goes, oh, my beer. And then... Like, I have a feeling I'm going to look out my window someday and see the four horsemen and not even bat an eye. Mm. Yeah. Well, they're probably going to be the, uh, they're probably going to follow what uh, Neil Gaiman suggested that they do and take on Mopeds instead. <laughs> uh, we are living through a really weird time, mm. but that's why I have a show about the Beatles from a slightly less weird time. We Although not too far yet, off, have we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go right back to the beginning. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean I'm not gonna start over, but I'm gonna go. I want to talk about you now. Oh, thank you. Instead of my self-delusional, that okay. I someone should buy me a dictionary or a thesaurus. You know, get Roger on the phone. Have it plopped in front of me so I actually know what I'm, what the fuck I'm saying. Well, you could also use a uh, thesaurus.com. That that's that's a good idea too. Yeah, which by the way means that this is probably the point where I should put the language warning in the show. Oh yeah. Well, if anyone's listened to the show before, he know what to expect. Yes, I know you curse a lot, and that's okay. But I'm not talking about that. Um, we're talking about subjects that's I thought and felt very deeply and usually when I get there that's when the $12 words come out I might be started using terms like um like coalescing provenance uh big tail theory DMOC uh mechanical versus master rights um and it's likely to get very technical after a bit if mechanical versus master rights yes if I talk about song publishing Hey, yes, yes. Well, yeah. if I really get so bad that um, you have an issue with that, I'm going to, you could just do what the rest of my family does. Take me aside and go, hey, asshole, back the fuck up. <laughs> well, 
see, that's the good thing about this show not being video. Because <laughs> even if I didn't, even if I didn't know what you were saying, you wouldn't see the deer in the headlights look on the other end. It's all, uh, it's just audio, huh? Yeah. I dressed for nothing. Well, we could turn the video on if you want. Ah. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have an audience if they could see my face. Let alone what did happen if it ended up on mine. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Yes. Let, let's let's go back to these twelve dollar words. Hell yes. James, how did you first discover the Beatles? Well, my first contact point with the Beatles was not musical. It was late 1968, and I was at an age when my parents thought that, yeah, they could take me to the movie theater, because at that point, after a certain age, you were expected to behave yourself if you sat in a dark room and watched the screen. As opposed to today, when you see people 15 years older than I am, think nothing about taking out their phones and talking in the third act. <laughs> but in that time in 1968, my parents took me to a film. They said, well... It can't be that bad. It's animated. It's low rating. It's... Oh, I see where this is going. For the kids. Oh, yeah. You see where this is coming. Yeah. And my first contact point was as a very young person seeing Yellow Submarine in a theater. Uh, the old Symphony Theater on uh, the Upper West Side. And now, uh... I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the Beatles through their music. Mm. What was it like being introduced through their fourth best movie? Well, um, it was, I would say. Okay, third best, third best. Well, I don't like Magical Mystery Tour that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was fairly young at the time. It was really, it was my first serious exposure to cinema. And. From that, I became a fan of the Beatles because I really liked what I saw, as well as started to be a fan of both uh, movies in general and animation in particular. Mm -hmm. And it was later that uh, I would start to get a chance to put two and two together and came up with Orange. About the time um, my dad started to uh, subtly say, let's increase, let's increase our kids' um, understanding of the world. So he showed me how to use his record player and said, here, you can listen to music. And, of course, he had all the things he'd expected there. Um, Mozart's horn concertos, uh, a large run of uh, Haydn, uh, lots of Beethoven, and most of the back end of the catalog that the Beatles released in the United States. Really? Yes. So he had in his collection the American Rubber Soul, the American Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Magical Mystery Tour, the White Album, Abbey Road, and The Beatles Again, a.k.a. Hey Jude. <laughs> and when I started listening to that, um, that's, when I started, that's when I started catching up with the rest of the conceptualization right there. <laughs> so, you, I, I'm still kind of astounded. You were introduced through the Yellow Submarine movie. <laughs> so... I it, does that mean you would have had a pretty warped understanding of what the Beatles were? Well, that's a good question. Um, because if you if you just watch the movie, then you might think they're like you know like the monkeys or something, you know, mm. just four guys living 
in this big house on a cliff and then they're in a yellow vehicle of the sea well on the one hand uh see there's my attempt at being uh verbose uh, a yellow vehicle of the sea yellow vehicle of the uh hmm. aquatic nature yeah well uh in terms of submarinical uh considerations um the uh this is already turning into one of my favorite interviews thus far (laughs) now you're spoiling it for me now i don't know how i can keep up at this point oh dear you make there's special there's no pretense with this show (laughs) and i didn't even have to slip you a 20 at the beginning of this (laughs) (laughs) wait you didn't well oh i it's kind of hard. well. The, I mean, it, the check didn't clear. The check didn't clear. So uh, I'm just playing more, along. No, no, more like uh, more like PayPal's been uh, shut down between the U.S. and yeah. Canada. But uh, eh. among other things, uh, tell me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm more disappointed. Like, I, I'm I'm all right that the border is shut down because we don't have as many cases of the uh, aforementioned virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't have Target anymore in Canada, so we really want to drive down to Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, although I'm kind of mixed on that. On the one hand, you see, earlier this year I had another project that I was going to uh, present, a, a novel that I'd serialized, so I was going to put into a combined form called Red Jenny and the Pirates of Buffalo. The main theme was with regards to the effects of climate change. I said, yeah, this is the year to do it. And the pandemic struck. And I said, yeah, maybe this isn't the year to do it. That yeah. border closed with Canada, which is actually one of the main themes as part of the book. And I'm saying, damn, I got to do it now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's you're going back and forth all over the damn place. <laughs> that That's what this show's all about. Mm-hmm. But and- going back and forth at the speed of sound. Huh. Well, it's better than light, I guess. I mean, for one, you're not going to yeah. push yourself in the corner if you go that fast. But getting back to the point at hand, um, in terms of conceptualizations... I don't even remember what the point at hand was. Well, I think you were talking about what it was like to see the Beatles yes. born first. Um, hmm. On the one hand, uh, believe it or not, kids do recognize that there is a difference between real life and cartoons pretty quickly. Um, I'm, you were a smarter kid than I. You no, know, I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to go there. It's yeah. light. Uh, on the other hand, um, there was a lot of their brand and image that came through in that. The idea that they would be joking with each other and that they'd be passing quips, which we get to see in most of their other films. Um, <laughs> one of the things that. Uh, I mean, this was part of something that uh, kept me interested in the Beatles, was the realization that they were the first group or set of individuals to actually sell a lifestyle. They were the first ones to do a certain amount of branding that could go across products in order to do cross-platform promotion. Mm -hmm. Cross-platform promotion before cross-platform promotion. Try saying that ten times fast. before it was really as big as it was. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a lot we can uh, credit the Beatles for in terms of how our modern world came about. Um, 
like I said, brand branded lifestyle is definitely one. Um, there's also the fact that they got involved in product lines that at the time were considered truly unique and amazing, but ended up uh, becoming fairly common. I mean, when they started sending around films of um, their performances of Hello, Goodbye, and Strawberry Fields Forever, um, because they said, oh, no, we don't want to go on the road anymore. We're just going to send it out. And so BBC and Ed Sullivan and every other place they would have played a couple of years before had the exact same thing that they shared on television, <laughs> which ultimately gives the germ of the idea for the music video to start about 10 years later or so, and then soon thereafter, MTV. And you could probably claim YouTube as well, considering the number of artists are using that platform to uh, get out the material. One more thing that the Beatles did that the Rolling Stones did not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, the Beatles did or didn't that the Rolling Stones didn't or did. Um, I mean, you've probably heard this story. I mean, if you know the difference between master and mechanical rights, um, you may have heard this tale about uh, about how Alan Klein had one more act of misery that he performed before he kicked off. Years ago, um, when the Stones were doing were very popular, he commissioned somebody to do an album of orchestral versions of the Rolling Stones material. Oh, oh yes, I, yes. You've heard this story. The Andrew Lou Goldham Orchestra. Yes, yes. And one of their compositions was a different, was a, the last time. Yes, which the Verve ultimately samples from in order to build up, in order to build up their song "Bittersweet Symphony," and they said, "Okay, we used this much." Alan Klein came back and said, "Oh no, you overused it. You owe us more." He said, "Oh no, oh yeah." Klein managed to lawyer up better than they did, and so the uh, credits of so the master rights of the song now belong to uh, Jagger and Richards. Well, I, I had actually heard that sometime last year, mm -hmm. uh, Jagger and Richards forfeited their, I think it was the publishing rights, back to uh, Richard Ashcroft from The Move. Or, not The Move, that's a different band, The mm -hmm. Verve. Um, okay. And so my friend and I, in celebration, we were streaming Bittersweet Symphony on every platform we could find to try and make up for lost royalties for Richard Ashcroft. Yeah. That's... But I think that that boat has sailed. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it's not 1997 anymore. And uh, it's it's all after the uh, BAFTAs and everything else. That um, I'm sorry, it's the uh, what's the British equivalent of the Grammys again? I think I simply uh, use the, the Brits. Phone. Brits, thank you. Yes. So yeah, yeah, but. Um, the funny thing is, you listen to the actual track of This Could Be The Last Time, and you start saying, how the hell can you tell where it ends? This goes on forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, my friend and I did a side-by-side -side comparison because we were really curious about this. Mm. And it's really funny when you read about the history of the song, and then you actually listen to the two songs. Mm -hmm. And, or... If you even listen to the two versions of The Last Time, like the original Stones version and the mm -hmm. Lou Goldham Orchestra version, yes. they don't sound like the same song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, of course, a great example of um, the Stones staying on brand. 
And of course, you get comparable um, going back with uh, the Beatles' own issue when they did All You Need Is Love. And they didn't realize that um, Glenn Miller had an objection to their uh, using the opening of In the Mood without actually coming to them first. So, but my understanding was that that was uh, settled amicably. Yeah. Whereas the verb thing was not. Yeah. No, no, no. There, there are some, I mean, the Beatles definitely, I mean, that's, that's one thing about the Beatles too, is that they are involved in a number of things that help define um, a post-industrial information aged economy world in terms of how do we, how do we monetize and give value to something that isn't a widget? How does intellectual property actually get measured and valued? Um, mm -hmm. Which is something that we're still having problems with, but at least they were the first. So, I mean, that that's one of the things that really is interesting about them, uh, especially if you look on the business side and you see how much the Beatles were there in that arena beforehand. Mm -hmm. I want to jump back to your uh, parents uh, yes. putting you in front of the record player. Mm -hmm. What was the first Beatles album that you remember listening to? Uh, I think the one that's the one that I think that uh, first struck my mind was Magical Mystery Tour. Mm -hmm. um, there was just and that would have been the American LP. Oh version. yes, the, mm -hmm. the American the gatefold with the booklet. Yes, yes. Matter of fact, that was the uh, edition my dad had. And um, I would listen. I would listen to that. And as somebody who probably needed to have highs and lows in order to keep his uh, young interest attached, because you know how kids that. Yeah. Um, that one probably especially pulled me in because mm -hmm. I'd go a couple minutes, go, oh here, oh here, oh here, and because it isn't as. Uh, because it actually has more variance between the tracks than, say, the American version of Revolver. Because mm -hmm. um, you go from, you know, the title track mm -hmm. to The Fool on the Hill, which sounds completely different. To Flying. To Flying. Blue Jay to Way. To Your Mother Should Know. Followed by um, I, Am the I Am the Walrus. And then all of the other stuff that, uh, all of the other stuff on the other side. Follows yeah, those money-grabbing bastards at Capitol threw at the wall. Yeah. But it actually stuck this time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why that's the version that appears on iTunes instead of the EP. Also, could you imagine selling that few songs for the same price that other collections are? Apple, the later Apple, not the Beatles Apple. Yeah. The later Apple would probably get burned to the ground. Unless they've, unless they've found somebody to shut off everybody's iPhone in order to kill the riot. But, um... Oh, they could do that. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Then again, I've gotten... They're, they're Apple. Then again, I've gotten lost using Apple Maps and finding myself uh, two miles away from where I am. So if they can't find me there, what choice, of, what ability do they really have? But that's... One of the classic fans on the run zingers that you have all come to know and love. Hmm. <laughs> well. You're running circles around me. Oh, please. I haven't even got my second drink yet. <laughs> but, you know, just... Chug, 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 chug. 
Okay. So, I want to ask you, what did, what did the Beatles mean to you? To you specifically? That is an answer that, that is a question with many different answers, all of whom running concurrently. Um, I think we've already dealt with the whole sense of uh, their fascination on the business end. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also the uh, there's also the uh, historiographic uh, component of studying the Beatles. Mm-hmm. During the 20th century, there were a number of different uh, there were two different thoughts in terms of how best to study history. There was the older one, which was called the Great Man of History theory, and yes, mm-hmm. it's as problematic as the name makes it out to be. Yeah. Uh, because in addition to being just males, it's usually white guys who speak in European languages and a little above the age of their uh, sexual peak, if you know what I mean. Yeah. On, on the other end, you had you had the other theory, which was embraced by which was embraced more by left wing Marxists, who said that everything is a matter of flow; that I, that conditions ultimately affect the performance of people. And then you have the Beatles, who find some way to come in the middle uh, between that, where you have talents that are incredibly, that we recognize today, in an environment that was certainly more willing to give them as much room as possible than, say, 10 or years either direction from that period. Something we could probably call the lucky bastard theory. Yeah. I know, it's not a great name. The uh, marketing... That's a great name. What are you talking about? Oh, good. Then I won't have to pay the marketing consultant for a new one. Anyways, but it, it does... The, the more you look at it, the more you realize that these were individuals who had brought the goods to the table at the right moment when the table was set for them. As I said uh, a couple of years earlier, uh, there wouldn't have been any room for... Uh, anybody in popular music and a couple of years later the uh, environment was so closed off whether it was entirely their fault or not uh mm-hmm. we're not going to touch that tonight but um they were just it, it was just showing up and and giving the goods when asked and that's uh and that makes for a much better way to approach history when you take that example and apply it elsewhere um i mean Abraham Lincoln, for a large extent, also could be deal with the lucky bastard theory. Yeah, I think I'll keep that name, sure. Um, Alexander Macedon also uh, is a good example of uh, somebody who benefits from that. But having the Beatles as the example from which we can pull forward and find a new model to apply, that's, that's something they definitely, uh, that's something that they definitely get uh, noticed. And also, there's the question of uh, the study of mythologization. Mm-hmm. That we have individuals who are recognized and held up as being canonical, which is a little different than all the other um, entrants to the canon that are there. I mean, you look at your average Renaissance artist, uh, the ones we consider the great masters. And then yeah. we realize that many of them are brought to our attention because the, Medi- the, the Medici family actually paid the commission, which means that if uh, there may have been somebody who was a lot better than Leonardo da Vinci, but Cosimo de Medici just didn't like the guy's sister. And so as a result, uh, the commission went elsewhere. 
-hmm. With the Beatles, however, um, they managed to hit that point uh, from the ground up, box populi. And so to sort of borrow from the British legal term, box populi, box dei, with that popular support, they then become they then become part of the canon through that method. I mean, they need a little bit of help here and there. Um, Leonard Bernstein, uh, talking wonderfully about them in 1966, uh, certainly opened up a lot of uh, salons in New York uh, to actually want to put on Beatle records. But um, but yes, it's this isn't something that's uh, declared from a small circle. It actually comes from outside and finds its way in. And that's something that's very rare when you look at the history of uh, art and uh, popular culture. I want to ask, why do you think the Beatles, as opposed to the Stones or any of the other British groups, have become, you know, you mentioned, like, being mythologized? Why do you think the Beatles specifically have been mythologized to the point that they are now? Well, I think part of it is because the uh, part of it is because it's a effort to try and find a point on which to look back on. And sometimes when we look back on an era, we tend to look for things that make us feel good about that time. Uh, part of the mythologization is to look for something that was saying this is worth looking back at uh you know, sort of the same way that um when people look back at the kennedy administration they talk about how john f kennedy was aligned with camelot without mm -hmm. necessarily saying oh yeah he had a one in three chance of blowing us all to kingdom come over cuba uh and in the course of trying to build the narrative as to how that decade was um it is something because people are probably looking back on that and looking for positives, and there are a few positives in terms of social awareness and movement uh, in the right direction. You know, they old saying history tends to bend towards the cause of justice. And it was at this point, everybody saw it both four degrees um, pretty remarkably. And this, in the course of looking at that, they, seem to better envisage what people thought of that time. I mean, people talk about peace and love from the 60s, which, I mean, was great if you were at Woodstock, but not Altamont. Be great if you, yeah. were, it'd be great if you were at a uh, commune with Lovin as opposed to looking at the uh, riots and Watts. And because that helps build the narrative and reinforces that standpoint, that, more than anything else, um, is a big plus for them, which isn't to take away the fact that they are actually brilliant composers and musicians, too. <laughs> Why do you think the Beatles still matter in today's society? Well, um, the main, main reason they still matter, I think, is, as I mentioned, we're looking for something that will assure us of better times that we can then use to say, well, if we had this, we can um, come back to that. They also serve as good models um, in that a lot of times when somebody wants to do something, it's always helpful to look back at what they had, what other people had done. Um, got, I mean, there's a reason why in judicial practice they use precedent 
because they said, well, it worked this way um, in this case. So it's got to be, so if we follow the same parameters as that, we should be doing okay. And to some extent, um, by having the Beatles do what they did, it helps us put into perspective um, the other acts that follow afterwards to try and take up that mantle. Um, BKS, for example, uh, becomes probably the most recent uh, group that's out there that tries to follow that. And as a result, uh, they do serve as a good yardstick to say, how successful are they? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about, say, how groundbreaking Sergeant Pepper is. So we start looking for things to say, is it as groundbreaking as Sergeant Pepper? And use that as our metric. So far, mm-hmm. the only thing I found in terms of opening notes that have uh, truly wowed me is only shallow off of Loveless by Douglas Valentine. Small plug. Yeah, they gave me five <laughs> bucks. But um but I mean that that's ultimately one of the big things we have for the Beatles because they had so filled the space within that time, having been pioneers in those areas we talked about, that they become a metric by which we have to define are we living as well at that? Are these people doing as well in that time or not compared with how they had? I think this is the first time you brought up My Bloody Valentine uh, that the shoegaze genre has been mentioned on this show. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't exactly uh, it didn't exactly capture everybody's uh, imagination the first time around. Which I, I think it's fantastic. Oh yes, yes. I mean, the whole album, uh, Loveless, is uh, actually really a masterpiece. Probably one of the best in the '90s. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't want to start getting snobbish here. Oh, you must try this Rothschilds '57. It is absolutely the best in wines. Oh, You're allowed to be as snobby as you wish. I hate snobs. Yeah. I hate snobs i mean it just um i mean we talked a little bit about the box popularly uh a little bit earlier when it comes to that i tend to prefer working on the other side of the barricade uh the big problem with being snobbish is that it's carrying on characteristics of individuals who have engaged in too much capture of the flow of capital and uh production and are using it in an abusive manner case in point uh people who were turning down the beatles most of them were pretty well high up i mean you probably remember um the novelty record i hate the beatles oh by uh alan sherman yes i mean he was he was in a very good position right there um and he said well this is where the real people come this is who we are they don't belong here you know like the old like the old um like the old uh, philosopher had said, it's only water in another's tears. So. Ah. And I think I'm running out of things off my record collection. If subtle hints about. <laughs> Do you want to go back to talk about my bloody Valentine? No, no, no. I mean, I'm sure by but, now, I'm sure by now people are looking at the uh, counter and said, when are they going to get back to the Beatles here? So, yeah. So, well, I think what you just said proves exactly why uh, the people need to seize the means of production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I just wanted an excuse to go full Marxist there. 
Hey, hey, from each according to their ability. Yep. But anyways. <laughs> and there goes half my audience. <laughs> if we promise we'll talk about Kenny Chesney in the next two minutes, will you stick around? <laughs> Jesus, oh, I'm sure the hippie kid's now. talking about communism. <laughs> Goddamn liberals <laughs> ruining this country. Yeah, they're probably looking at you and saying, wait a minute, he's from Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> Canada, the most communist country. Yeah. As Although, everyone knows. Well, you can find a few places where a where hundred flowers haven't bloomed yet, like say Alberta. But, you know, uh, about that. <laughs> I, I've I'm sure there's people out there listening from Alberta, so I don't want to go into too much detail. I loved it when I visited Edmonton. I hope that works. Oh, don't lie. No one likes it. No one likes Edmonton. I did. I, I, I actually I actually liked Edmonton. The uh, Really? Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it was a wonderfully put together small city. Um, <laughs> the South Bank there... Uh, that they taken over Freeman, I think. I'm probably messing up the name, but it's a wonderful community that's supported. The, the funny thing is, you probably have more of a frame of reference for uh, Edmonton than I do. Ah, okay, that's possible. Um, of course, it probably helped that I went at a very magical time when I was there. It had been only a couple of days since the summer solstice. Oh, and. I was there taking pictures of the skyline at night with a little bit of sunlight just over the horizon at 11.35 p.m. That will impress anybody. Wow. Yeah. What year was this? 2019. Oh. Huh. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, I, I feel like a bad Canadian... Because I, I have not been further west in Canada than London, Ontario. Well, which is, you know, well, it's, less, it's it's about as far west as maybe Chicago. No, it's not as far no, west it's, as it's Chicago. More, it's more like Cleveland online with that. Yeah. Well, you know, since the 4-9 is closed for business, if you really wanted to get away somewhere, Edmonton's a pretty good spot. I mean... I mean, I'd, I'd rather just keep driving and hit British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you got the nice, you got the nice pretty mountains there. Yeah, got some mountains in Alberta too, but uh, as a matter of fact, the other side of the British Columbians uh, standpoint. <sighs> okay, we were discussing why the Beatles still matter. And communism. Yes. Although, why the Beatles were Marxist libs? Well, I mean, Karl Marx is there in the second row of the Sgt. Pepper album as one of the members. He is. He yes. is there. Yes. Um, that means I've been compared to Karl Marx in more ways than one. You know. You know. Be better him than some of the other uh, come latelys after him. Yeah. Anyways. Um, I really derailed this. No, no, no. I'm sure we can pick up the pieces easily enough. I mean, we were talking about uh, the Beatles and their influences and going out there. And 
there was another field I studied particularly well, which was cinema. And there's a lot of stuff that comes from the Beatles and their film ventures that ultimately gets picked up and carried through. Um, for example, there's a whole subgenre of films um, called the, oh, this can't work, can it? Oh my, which A Hard Day's Night was the first one of, uh, where people said, oh, this is just a quickie grab. It can't be worth anything. Mm-hmm. And people said, oh my God, this is a really good film. Mm-hmm. So in terms of looking for yardsticks, uh, ultimately you do find a number of other movies where they do follow that. Uh, Prince and Purple Rain and um, and you know, Eight Mile with... Uh, Eminem. Yes, thank you. Yes, I, I feel like I, I would get burned at the stake for saying this. I'm not a big fan of the Purple Rain movie. Okay. What was the, uh, what did you find was an issue with it? I, I found the story a little confusing, and I found Prince very uncharismatic. Okay, on that point. Um, in terms of the story, it's really very simple. Um, stuck up kid gets his comeuppance and learns to become a real mensch and which is why the character is not very appealing because he's he starts off in a bad place and has to go through problems in order to find himself which is why um which is why the guy who's just basically looking at himself in the mirror every time he does the opening in uh go crazy he's suddenly pulling from the depths of his soul when he starts doing purple rain which he thinks is going to be his last time on stage Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if you get a chance, it's definitely worth taking a look at again. Okay, fine. I'll I'll give Purple Rain another watch. I, I I'll admit I have not seen it since the day Prince died. Yeah. That night, I I put on the movie because I'd never seen it before. Uh, like, okay, let let's see what this is about. Okay. Yeah. And since we're talking about Beatles um, and talking about movies. Um, we talk about the five films that the Beatles were in, but uh, it's actually considerably more than that. Uh, I just finished a gig at the Repeat Magazine, um, where I had a column there, Fantasia Obscura, where I look at the genre films, fantasy, science fiction, and horror, that people don't always remember from the period Repeat had, which was any time before 1981. And I actually did manage to get the Beatle films, uh, talked about in the column. Oh. Out, out of all the out of all those Beatles movies, which is your favorite to watch? Uh you mean of the you mean of the main uh main's mothership. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um I mean I do have the emotional attachment with Yellow Submarine. Which because it works on so many different layers. I mean, you've got the cute kid story that's going on. You've got the uh, World War II references, that are going, especially when you've got uh, towards the end as the meanies are being defeated. And he goes, Max, it's no longer a blue world. Where shall we go? Argentina? I mean, at that point, yeah, you, you could definitely tell that... Ailman's uh, experiences, having watched uh, what happened 20 years earlier when, when you know, the Germans showed up, does does go through the film and is something that's 
is, is makes, makes him a very interesting allegory for that time and also a really good allegory for anybody who goes through uh, such issues. I think the second best, the one that um, I've come to appreciate the most, is uh, A Hard Day's Night. Uh, as I said, it's the little film that nobody thought could, but boy, did it. Mm -hmm. uh, Alan Owen's script is absolutely amazing. Um, the fact that he worked with the four of them and got personality traits that they ultimately embrace themselves and move on with. Uh, I mean, it, that's that did a great job of establishing brand as well as um, making people respect movies with uh, rock and roll music, so they wouldn't get um, so they would uh, push to the side like that's trad dad, rock around the clock, where the artist would show up. There'd be sort of a half script. There'd be a nice performance that people were going to watch 40 years later, but the audiences of BO were just not going to be into it. Uh, third, I guess, would be Help, which is an incredibly funny film that hasn't aged well. No, no, it has I'm sure not. you've heard the term brownface. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The fact that you've got this leader of a cult from the Indian subcontinent who's played by Leo McKern, uh, it just... And some of the jokes that they come around with just, oh, Lord. It's, that's not one you really want to, uh, that's not one you really want to share at this moment. It'll probably be a few years before people can sit down and not freak out watching that. I, I as outdated as it is, uh, I, I will still admit, out of all the Beatles movies, to me, that is the most enjoyable to sit down and watch. Okay, yeah. Because to me, I'm able to kind of just turn off my mind and have fun mm -hmm. watching Help. Oh, Plus, yes. it's it's shot so well. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, especially the the musical sequences. I, I was watching it a, a couple months ago, mm -hmm. and, you know, especially, like, You're Gonna Lose That Girl, and mm. seeing the way Dick Lester, you know, shot those musical sequences was mm. just it's the best the Beatles have ever looked on film and it's really inventive how he shot it because mm -hmm. he, he perfected the way you're supposed to film a rock band with a hard day's night and yes. that concert scene. Mm -hmm. But then he took it like steps further, like in help with the, uh, the night before sequence where it's like what we would now kind of call what looked like a GoPro attached to like the neck of Paul's guitar looking ah, yes. down mm -hmm. as he's playing yep. and just these really kind of at the time I would assume bizarre camera angles which are now kind of you know yeah. commonplace yeah yeah my understanding was that Dick Lester liked to do a lot of handheld so he would bring the camera with him um, or he, and uh, hold it in a position in order to get exactly the shot he wanted which uh, was actually a trick that was used a lot by uh French New Wave, but uh, he did a wonderful job of applying it to, um, into the common area. And yeah, what you say about the musical performances, um, you could take those out and use those the same way you used the uh, promotional films that come later. And you could even make an argument that um, one of the first music videos that would be out there were actually these sequences from the film. They were. Yes. No, especially help itself. Mm -hmm. 
Because it's presented as a promotional film within the context of the movie. Yes, yes. And of course, the fact that if you don't deal with those landmines that are left behind, um, there is actually some really good clips that come out. And that, that brings up the, uh, that puts in pe people's minds Beatles as a comedy group. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were all, they were all of course, uh, really into it. I mean, John Lennon goes on to talk about how how much he was influenced by the Marx Brothers. Uh, the Marx Brothers and the Goons. Yes, the Goons especially. Mm -hmm. um, well, that was the main reason why they got Dick Lester in the first place. Because the, the Goons movie, Running, Jumping, Standing Still, I, I probably got the name of that wrong, but it's something no, like the that. running, jumping, standing still film, which was actually not the goons themselves, but members of the goons, Spike Mulligan, uh, and I believe, I believe also Peter Sellers were part of it, but it wasn't an actual goons product. Uh, but uh, yes, yes, there is that connection which. Uh, you do see ultimately going through, especially the uh, interconnectivity between the Beatles and comedy uh, that makes up a large portion of their narrative. Uh, speaking of narrative, uh, the fourth movie on the list would probably have to be Let It Be. Uh, it so that means Magical Mystery Tour is dead last. <sighs> the first time I saw Magical Mystery Tour, it was a sacrificial play by the uh, owner of the RKO Fordham who had put American hot wax on the bill and wasn't drawing anything. He said, well, I've got nothing to lose. I may as well make it a double feature with something that's uh, relatively cheap. And so you get Magical Mystery Tour brought in and you read about what happened in the production. And they said, oh, we're going to just be all free and leave. We're just going to use pie charts here. We're going to just let our things go. And then... That was in the uh, Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. They had yes. the pie chart, mm -hmm. which... As I remember, the the uh, Blu-ray also had a little sequence where they had Ringo looking at the film again for the first time in a while. And you see this expression on his face where he says, Ah, I should have quit drinking years earlier. Sorry. <laughs> He's just, uh, I mean, the movie is a complete mess. I mean, you do get one or two interesting performance sequences. Um, but there, you, you could barely call it a plot. Uh, no, there really is no plot. Um, only the bellboy uh, with Jerry Lewis had less plot than this one. And I think to some extent he probably had a couple of card you refer to before every scene he showed up in, which Beatles, unfortunately, and because they really aren't natural actors, uh, it's, I, I suppose you could say that Magical Mystery Tour is probably at some point a distant ancestor that influenced um, all of the uh, YouTube celebs who basically showed up on camera and said, oh, let's do something interesting. I don't know what, but hey, what's what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And, and they end up filming a dead body in a mm -hmm. yep. famous forest in Japan. Yep, yep. 
And I'm sure if you if you try and make a straight line between Paul McCartney and PewDiePie, you are going to get into trouble. <laughs> so we're not. But yes, I mean the real problem with it is that there's a certain amount of delusion uh, regarding the making of the film. And Paul goes, "Oh, you do know they are, they are teaching this in film school." Uh, yeah, they probably are. At the same time, nautical engineering schools are teaching about the Titanic. So, yeah. I mean, the only professional that was really involved in the film was Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick? Yes. Magical Mystery Tour. Yes. If you were... Well, if you're... I, I, I knew that... Well, this kind of comes back around to your book. Mm. Uh the fantastic story about what if the Beatles had made the right. Lord of the Rings movie. Is that what you're getting at with Kubrick? Well, I mean, in terms of Kubrick's... Oh, wait. Oh, oh, I, I completely forgot. No, it's they had the stock footage from Dr. Strangelove. Exactly. Yes. They were actually using uh, versions that they uh, could color. I mean, if you take a look at everything you hear as you hear dun, 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 and picture B-52 being superimposed on it, then you can see exactly where they were used in both films. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I completely forgot about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting project sometimes. Somebody try and do the uh, soundtrack combination between the two. Uh, but that's in better hands than mine. I, I'm sure you've got capable hands. Well, again, the camera's off. So yeah. <laughs> So it's just suppositional, I assume, on your right. <laughs> I'm just... I think that was a subtle enough way... I want to talk about your book. Oh, thank alt, you. Altogether alt now. Thanks. Which, again, I said this at the top of the show. If you don't have it, go get it. There's no excuse for you not to have it. it it's, a, it's a great book. It's... I, I'm a big fan of the, you know, historical fiction kind mm-hmm. of genre. And having a whole book of Beatles historical fiction is just mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, historical fiction says that you're dealing with events as they occurred in history, uh, that you have a, a fictional character for. And in a couple of cases, uh, that does apply. I mean, the rest of it is what would be called today counterfactual, or at the time I was doing it, alt his. And these days, alt anything is probably a term a lot of people want to stay away from. But yeah, uh, it it wouldn't have worked otherwise as a pun. On Fucking that. libs! Why aren't they talking about the Beatles? Okay, for Bubba in the back row, there we are going back <laughs> to the subject. <laughs> but yes, um, there are there are a number of stories that. The thing was, was that this was greatly intersectional for me. Um, Having been a study, having been a student early on and gotten one of my undergrad degrees in history, which was helpful later down the road. Um, 
a lot of these stories were ones that I would research before I would get into to try and make it as authentic as possible. Matter of fact, there was one story I never wrote because the research killed it. It was going to be a story that was set during the you know, Lost Weekend period. Mm -hmm. um, John's in Los Angeles, and and, and he's uh, palling around there. And at one point, uh, he and his drinking buddies get the attention of somebody who's working elsewhere, and he says, "Oh, Mr. Lennon, I have something wonderful. I'd love to get you involved with." The guy, of course, having ended up being working at Hanna Barbera, so. The idea was to see about what would happen if John had been one of the guests on the Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Unfortunately, oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, the research showed that production had wrapped up 18 months before he touches down at LAX. So as a result, I could not justify a story that would have John go in there and be able to use the line, Look, Raggy, it's Ron Redden! <laughs> oh, well. Missed opportunities. <laughs> uh... One of the particular standouts to me was um, the one with, you know, Jack Kennedy and the Beatles. Ah, yes, one how great really moment. How John Lennon stopped the Vietnam War dead in its tracks, pretty much. Uh, I wouldn't say he stopped it. Um, remember, he's uh, he he butts heads with uh, JFK. Okay, spoiler alert, but, you know, um, but at one point he says the best way in order to deal with things is to make presence known, and the presence they made known was in the Gulf of Tonkin. Unfortunately, LBJ tried something like that, too, and, well, still, um, that, that was a particularly interesting story for me, because there were... There were some components that were just small background details that were a lot harder to research than I thought. Uh, like the name of Kennedy's Secretary of Education and what his plans were as he was going into the back end of 1963 to use in a cabinet meeting. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like the person who goes to like 20 different uh, shops in order to have one small prop at the back of the set. And it worked actually, but you know. <laughs> Another one of my favorites in the book was, well, kind of, it was, I I wasn't expecting to see it. I'm a big fan of early Pink Floyd. Ah. So imagine my delight when the Pink Floyd popped their heads into Studio Two. And yes. spoiler alert, John Lennon and Sid Barrett go on a trip, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... It, I came across the fact that the two albums, Sgt. Pepper and Piper at the Gates of Dawn, were being recorded at the same time, just down the hall from each other. And that was a historical occurrence I could not let slip away. Um, and it, it was great in order that it was covering the Sgt. Pepper period, which is considered one of the Beatles' most uh, creative periods. And at the same time, also be able to bring in as I said, intersectionally, uh, my interest in Pink Floyd. And unfortunately, Paul, poor Sid, who uh, was really not in good shape by uh, no. sadly. And it, it, made, it made sense to do it in that manner, uh, to have John actually experience on some level what Sid's going through, and the fact that Sid has been 
there so often he could actually have a plus one when he goes that way. I'm, I'm now I'm just my my mind is so detached. I'm just thinking about early Pink Floyd now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, how long should we give you a moment to wait? A couple of seconds or the entire length of uh, Interstellar Overdrive? Which which version of Interstellar Overdrive? Ah, that's a good question. Yes, because it it could range anywhere from you know eight minutes to let's say an hour. Well, I'm assuming the eight minutes one because that's a lot easier to use. I mean, that's the version that uh, we see in Doctor Strange. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's probably uh, it. Probably will go with that one. Yeah. I want to ask you some quick fire questions. Ah, uh, the Sophie's Choice part of the program. Butts. <laughs> Sophie's Choice. You only get to- you only get top shelf references from us, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want something underneath, well, you know we'll talk in the back room there. <laughs> Butts. What is your favorite Beatles song? The one that always ends up on my... Again, talk about a Sophie's Choice. Yes, exactly. I mean, which kid out of your 238 are you going to bring with you to America? Uh, I think the one that, when I'm asked for a song that always keeps coming up is Tomorrow Never Knows. Thank you. You're Surprisingly, you're the first person to have said that on this show. Really? Does that mean mean that the duck comes down with the $20 in its bill? Yes. Ah. Okay. You, you get the secret prize money that no one knew about. <laughs> and that I don't, I coincidentally don't have. Ah, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, but yes, getting back to why. Um, it is one of the most innovative tracks that's out there, and it demands your attention. And with every listen, like like an onion with very thin uh layers of its shell, you go from one and you find something really interesting in the next one after that. Uh, the fact that John's uh, rifting with the help of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, mm-hmm. the choices and how they came up with the sound effects, and it's, it is one of Paul's best bass lines listening to... Even though it's, I think, a grand total of... I, I, I think it's just like one note... I think there might be a bit of an octave in there, but I yeah. think it's just one note. And it boom, works boom, boom, so boom, well. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and then you have the yes. hypnotic drums from yes. Ringo. Yes. And if my understanding is correct, they actually ran through that as opposed to just doing a couple of it and then looping it in the background. Uh, which is what you have in other songs like that, like uh, Linda Ronstadt's version of Heatwave, for example. They just did a couple of seconds and, okay, Linda, we've got it all set on loop. Whenever you're ready with the vocals. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but that song already was full of tape or tape right. loops. Well, that's true, yes, um, which is... We're talking about uh, how the Beatles broke ground in a lot of things, in many ways, uh, sampling um, and other artists who go into that, such as hip-hop, 
really owe a lot to songs like Tomorrow Never Knows and other cases where the Beatles would put together collages of materials. How do you feel about the mythology of the song Carnival of Light? Ah, that's an interesting question. I know that came up uh, in a discussion I had because I had a, uh, somebody was asking me about other intersectionals uh, with the Beatles, one of which being Doctor Who. And the fact- Oh, I forgot about that story in your ah. book where uh, Ringo was Patrick Troughton's, one of his companions. Yes. At the time I wrote it, uh, there hadn't been a companion who'd been there with the doctor an entire time. Um, it, it was only a couple of years later when uh, Chris Eccleston uh, takes Billy Piper with him that you see that. But yeah. that was that was a fun story. I mean, considering all of the, like I said, there's all of the intersectionals. And the fact that the Beatles and Doctor Who have this um, come up at about the same time, um, matter of location and the fact that two of the doctors are actually scousers well um, yes yes and the, paul mcgann is one of them and... paul mcgann and tom baker oh that's right tom baker yes and the fact that how, you, uh, how did i almost forget about tom baker i have a signed picture of tom baker on my wall ah it's better that you hold on like that there and of course you've got the fact that you've got 2.38 actors who played the Doctor playing the Beatles. That is true. Peter Capaldi did play George. Right, which he... E Eccleston played John. Yes. And for the point three eight, well, how familiar are you with Doctor Who? Uh, I'm quite familiar. And I know Paul McGann's brother in that same thing that mm. uh, Capaldi played George, his brother played John. Ah, Yes. Is that the point three eight? No, the point three eight is uh, you're going to take a couple of steps. Um, and again, I don't know how many Whovians there are among your audience, so maybe I should just stick to the um, executive uh, the executive summary. Uh, you're, you're talking to a Whovian, so you can go as okay. far as you want. Okay, Trial of a Time Lord. My favorite of all of the fourteen part Doctor Who stories. Yes. And you've got the fact that there's the Valyard, who is, we find out, is a later incarnation of the Doctor. A point that doesn't get lost, because it does get brought up again in um, during the Matt Smith year, that he is ultimately going towards that point. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the Valyard has a disguise, where he plays somebody who is trying to get the doctor and his companions to calm down in their presence, but it is actually the valued himself. Said actor who played that disguised version of the valued was Joffrey Hughes, mm -hmm. who earlier in his career was the voice of Paul in Yellow Submarine. Really? Yes. Now all we need is someone who's played Paul. Oh, wait, no. We've had someone who's played Paul. Now now we just need someone who's played Ringo. Yeah, well, I understand. I understand Jodie Whittaker does do an interesting bit of drums. I just have to do, put a uh, mustache on her. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, Question if, Shea can, if Kate Blanchet can play Bob Dylan, that door is open. <laughs> that, that door is wide open. 
I, I, I'll have to admit, don't watch that movie if you don't have all your facilities, because it really freaks you out. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. That, wh- what's the name of the movie again? Um, the, the Bob Dylan one. I'm not here. I'm not here. Because, like, seven different actors play Bob Dylan in that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Some doing a little bit better than others. And to be honest, it's not the freakiest uh, film to watch if you're not entirely there. Um, <laughs> there's actually a film with an actual beetle in it that uh, sort of goes to that area. Son of Dracula. Ah, uh, yes. You've seen it. I, I've seen a bit of it. Yeah. That's probably about all you really need to see. Um, <laughs> you've got Harry Nilsson, uh, who's playing, who's playing the uh, scion of the Prince of Darkness, who doesn't seem to have any dark powers, except for the fact that when he shows up and drops in on the group, the group just happens to have John Bonham and... Uh, John Bonham and uh, Dr. Hook in the band, or later shows up and John Entwistle is there on the drums. Uh, on the drums? I'm sorry, not John Entwistle. Uh, Keith Moon. Okay. All right. That was one drink too many. Uh, anyways. We're, we are true equals here. Ah. Uh, well, the. Uh, and then, of course, the Beatle connection is the fact that it was one of the few. Features done by Apple Films, which was one of the lesser divisions of Apple Corps. That that is one way to describe it. One of the yes. lesser divisions. Yes, and it had Ringo as both Merlin the magician, who doesn't do a good job with magic, really, and he's also the producer of the film, who doesn't do a good job with distribution and promotion of the picture. <laughs> I understand the biggest market it had in its first window was Atlanta, which at the time was not that big a movie town. Atlanta. What do you think drew Atlanta to Son of Dracula? It was cheap. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's one film distribution story I have no idea how that came about. None. You know, I, I'm curious. I want to go back to Doctor Who for a second. Who is your favorite <laughs> doctor? Uh, I think the one I have the most respect for is Patrick Troughton. Number the reason, two. The reason I have respect for him is because if he, because he was given the job of trying to convince you this is a different actor who's not going to try and do the actor before them, but has mm-hmm. to prove that it is the same person underneath that shell. He had to prove that he is as much the doctor as William Hartnell was. Exactly. And had he not done so... um, Because he didn't have the luxury that, say, John Pertwee did, where it it had already happened once before. Mm -hmm. Right. He had to establish it. Had he not done that, Doctor Who would not have had as many episodes as Catwees. Catwees was another um, BBC fantasy show from that time about a wizard who finds himself in the 1960s after accidentally spelling himself over from King Arthur's time. Not a great show. Did this one also have its episodes wiped from the BBC? And if so, was that a smart decision? Well, that's one of the big things that 
the Beatles and Doctor Who do share is that they both have the same major enemy, the BBC uh, tape retention policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the whole idea that videotape could be used again, therefore we can wipe over it so that we don't have to build another warehouse, was very short-sighted. You had people who were coming to them and saying, what do you mean we don't have episodes of The Doctor to show? Tom Baker's wiping it out there. We have to bring the other ones. Uh, well, it's not there. (sighs) All right. Well, maybe we can do something else. What about all those appearances the Beatles had on Ready, Steady, Go? Uh, horribly short-sighted. I think the the biggest bit of dramatic or of poetic irony, I, I don't even know how I would say it, one of the only surviving clips of the Beatles' 1965 appearance mm-hmm. on top of the Pops was on an episode of Doctor Who. Yes, I believe it was part of The Chases, I recall. It was. And that episode was also uh, one of the ones that a large dedicated body of Whovians who scoured the planet looking for copies of uh, the programs and who had success finding them in such faraway places as New Zealand, Iraq, Ghana. I know the last batch yeah. was found in Nigeria. Yes, Nigeria had uh, two complete stories of um, Patrick Troughton's, uh, including one that absolutely nobody thought uh, was back there. And it would be interesting, I, I would propose that people who want to do that, if you're a Beatles fan and you're looking for that, find yourself a Whovian, get involved with them, learn their techniques in terms of how they went out and hunted for because mm-hmm. if the Beatles fans had the same techniques as the Whovians, we might have a few more complete episodes of Top of the Pops or Ready, Steady, Go. Well, if they were as good as some of the Whovians uh, that were out there, they might have found somebody who brought an 8mm to see Carnival of Light. Oh. <sighs> Talking about Carnival of Light just makes me frustrated because I want to hear it so badly. Hmm. Uh, I, I've told this story before. When I met Mark Lewison at the last Fest for Beatles fans, uh-huh. I had him write a custom footnote to that page because I, I was desperate to hear anything about that song. And mm-hmm. so he wrote something like, Carnival of Light, will we ever hear it? I hope so. But if we hear it, we probably won't pay it any attention. Which is possible. I mean... Because yeah. tra- from what I've heard, it's not very good. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about intersectionality with Doctor Who, and that comes up because the woman who's really responsible for the theme, Delia Devonshire. Mm-hmm. From a, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Yes. Uh, she was she was on the same bill that night. Um, she had gotten together a couple of friends and formed the band Delta Sigma to prove that, yes, you can perform electronic music live. And that was her first uh, concert appearance. And she actually uh, went on the as a warm-up act before the Beatles showed up. Really? Yep. You learn something new every day. I'm trying to remember. That was, was it, was that at the Roundhouse in London or was that somewhere else? No, that was the Roundhouse. I mean, we're talking about intersectionality. And I know as a Whovian fan, you were probably, you probably are aware of a gentleman by the name of Brian Hyman. The name sounds familiar. Okay. Ryan Hyman was an individual who had put together a number of books of photographs he had taken of the people he knew growing up. 
and he had and he was uh, spent all of his summers in Torgway in Devon, uh, which was a wonderful little place, and that was nice and friendly. I.e., it wasn't exclusive. By exclusive, I mean if you don't show up at the right church on Sunday, we don't want you the other six days of the week there. <laughs> and his pictures were wonderful shots of life. One of which got put online and caused a lot of people to freak. The picture he had were two friends who, according to according to a Hyman, were people who only met when they both showed up for the summers there. Uh, and they were just casual acquaintances and probably talked about who knows what. And <laughs> just a couple of hours every week and then go back to what they were doing. The right-hand side of the picture is Verity Lambert, the woman who puts together Doctor Who. Now, I know I know Verity Lambert. Yes. I mean, it is... I mean, we talk about connectivity and coincidences that we find thereby. And, of course, we have to ask ourselves, how much is it coincidence? And if it is just coincidence and there isn't a higher power that's involved, how good are the odds? And if you can figure out that set of odds... Can I use that to buy a lotto ticket? Well, I'm going to go back to the quick fire questions. So yes, your, fav- your favorite yes. song, Tomorrow Never Knows. Right. Now we got to deal with the other 237 kids that are left behind. What is your least favorite Beatles song? The one I had the most trouble warming up to is You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. Really? Yeah, it's it seems pointless. Uh the fact that it starts off and then it shifts uh, rather inelegantly and it goes back and forth. And I mean, at one point, uh, the only thing I thought that made it cool was that it was a way to get back at Monty Python. Because mm-hmm. uh, there is there is a moment in, because um, it does sound very Python-esque. When you think- at one point, John does sound a bit like one of the pepper pots. Yes, and um, the fact that years earlier, when the Beatles recorded Christmas Time is Here Again, one of the random things they have is a game show where the contestant gets a washer dryer and is happy and then gets a city council and is less so. Uh, a couple of years later, there's a sketch on Monty Python where there's a game show and the contestant gets the, gets the city council. And the housewife, played by Michael Palin, goes, but I already got one of those. And then see John Cleese start strangling her. And I thought they looked at that and said, oh, you think you're going to do that, Sonny Jim? But this was one of those cases where the research uh, proved against it, because apparently they laid down the tracks months before the first episode premiered. So there's even less of a reason to want to listen to it now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Clef swipe. <laughs> I, I appreciate how blunt you are with the transition there. What is your favorite Beatles album? That would have to be Magical Mystery Tour. You know what? That That's not always the answer I pick, but that's mm-hmm. an answer I really respect. Thank you. I mean, you could probably make all sorts of arguments about artistic merit and whether anything is important, but 
I go back to that moment when I'm a kid and I'm just learning how to use the records my dad has allowed me the chance to put on. And every time I hear a song from that, I go back to that place. When I was a lot younger, didn't have a lot to worry about. Things always looked a lot happier. And whatever you could say about artistic arguments, um, sentimental memories will always win in the end. Yeah. I, I mean, I do have some very strong sentimental memories attached to the Magical Mystery Tour album as well. Mm. Because with me, I, I always associated that with, um, you know, first starting to listen to the Beatles. Uh. You know, I, I had first heard, you know, the Red and the Blue. But then, mm. you know, my my dad gave me on a USB thumb drive all of the Beatles albums and EPs, which mm. I don't know why he gave me all the EPs, but he gave me all of he them. He was a completist? No, I, I don't even know why. I know he illegally <laughs> downloaded them all, but which now I don't feel so guilty about because I've bought every single one of those fucking Beatle records at least six times. So, well, you, Apple you, you, Records. You gotta, you, you gotta keep EMI in business somehow. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing about that statement is EMI doesn't even exist anymore. So my mm -hmm. efforts didn't work enough. Yeah, sick transit glorium. <laughs> yeah. EMI is dead. Long live EMI. And what the EMI live... <laughs> so, usually I, I go for Revolver as my favorite, but mm -hmm. lately I've been finding myself with that and Magical Mystery Tour tied. Okay. I mean, no disrespect to Revolver, because there's a lot of good stuff there. That was part of the um, introductory package that I'd had. And as I said, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows... Uh, being the favorite song and of course the album that it gets introduced to the world on has to be uh, given respect at that point yeah. I mean we could both agree that they're better than Sgt. Pepper well, I mean there's certainly I mean I'm, we should give Pepper its due um, I don't think we have to worry about Pepper getting its due yeah yeah, but as long as you say, okay, we respect it. And oh, yeah. I, I respect it. It's just, you know, I feel like it's a little played out at this point. Well, there was that big push back in uh, 2017. So, yeah, I could see how that would probably wear itself out. Yeah. You know, Rolling Stone magazine naming Sgt. Pepper the best album of all time. Meanwhile, the Village Voice and the, the New York Times, when it came out, said, what is this crap? Well, the funny thing is, like, I think it was, was it the guy from the New York Times or the Village Voice who was listening to it on a busted stereo? And that's why he gave it a bad review. Or so he claims now. I think it was the, it was more likely the voice because they never paid much of anything. So, favorite Beatles album, Magical Mystery Tour. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Hands down, rock and roll music, which has nothing to do with the material on it. It was the packaging and promotion. Oh, my God. It is it is the worst thing to ever appear on a Beatles album. Yes. I mean, you get this thing. 
it says rock and roll music and you open up the gatefold and it shows you all the stuff that associates with rock and roll music and the Beatles, like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. It and, looks like something from like a KTEL Happy Days album. Uh, and actually, I think it was more so trying to egg on the uh, success that uh, the soundtrack for American Graffiti had, which was a three disc set with a uh, gatefold. And they said, well, this looks good. Yeah, let's go with this one. What the hell? And when it didn't sell, it ended up going the route of direct sales. You're, I don't know if you're familiar with the days of direct sales. I am not familiar with the days of direct well, sales. I, I might be, but the, the phrase is not coming well, to mind. Well, there was a period when records would go to record stores, and some records would not get into record stores. And if you had an album that even Kmart wasn't going to do, you do direct sales by putting on a commercial in order to include, in order to entice people to send money to buy it through the mail. Oh, mail and, order. Yes, the mail order. And the commercial that they've had for it uh, was horribly put together. I mean, there were all sorts of random shots, all sorts of things to suggest the Beatles, including shots that Bob Gruen had done to John like only a year or two earlier. So what the hell was that doing on this? And of course, they all end the same way. To order your album or a track tape, please send 1995 and shipping and handling to here. P.O. Box, Box here. Grand Central Station, New York, New York, 10016. That's here. P.O. Box, Box here. Grand Central Station, New York, New York, 10016. Sorry, no COD orders accepted. And you sit there looking at the commercial and going, oh, what? <laughs> And the Academy Award for Best Performance goes to Jim Ryan. I, uh, yeah, they're probably going to, uh, they're probably going to tell me uh, Oscar's so bland. <laughs> oh, but that rock and roll music album is just horrible. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, it's. Luckily, the cover improved slightly when Capitol realized they weren't selling any rock and roll music albums, and so they just decided to split it in two and mm -hmm. sell them as budget records. Yeah. yeah. And, and the cover looks a little less awful. Hmm. Hmm. Not by much. That's not saying I much. Yeah, I got him, and I never saw the uh, split apart copies of that, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, it's just like the Beatles, as just as they got off the plane from JFK. Ah. And so they're just kind of standing there. Oh, yeah. Is it the standard one that uh, AP or UPI took uh, that hit the wires with it? Or? Probably. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. They don't have to bring in a... Uh, they don't have to bring in an art director who really doesn't understand the product. Just a simple, uh, just a simple feed of the wire services for commercial use. Hey. I just think, well, when you're looking at artistic integrity and creativity, Capitol Records in the mid-1970s was not the place to look. Well, I mean, the fact that Capitol was notorious for saying, we know how you did it over there, but we have our ways over here, which is why you get the uh, mix-ups on the albums uh, mm -hmm. between American fans and British fans. Uh, and it's a practice that they never really stopped. Thomas Dolby's The Golden Age of Wireless also had that same issue when mm -hmm. uh, I'm over here. 
Well, that that stuff was even happening, you know, until like the early '80s with like Iron Maiden. Yes. Yes. And I know another one was uh, the Sweets uh, Desolation Boulevard got quite shuffled up crossing mm. the pond. Yep. Yep. Well, now we live in the age where you can buy the tracks individually, despite what Pink Floyd thought they had, thought they'd accomplished when they won that lawsuit. And as a result, you can now take them and build your own album your own way. American album, British album, hell, my album. I'm going to definitely have Tomorrow Never Knows followed by Mr. Moonlight. And then we're going to go into I was going to go to I Want You, She's So Heavy. <laughs> Followed by Chains. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. That may be the best sentence I think I've heard on this show thus far. <laughs> Tomorrow Never Knows, followed by Mr. Moonlight. Yep. Y- you have won Fans on the Run. Oh. So now I'm a fan on the run? Yes, you are. Can I ask you a small favor? Yes. Can you give me a five-minute head start? (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Don't worry, I have the lower body strength of a toddler. So, you know, (laughs) if I started five minutes before you, you would probably still win. Yeah, I don't know. I've been stuck in the apartment here for the last four months or so. Thank you, incompetence. So who knows how well I could do now? Well, I've had the opportunities to leave my house, but I just haven't taken them. So. Ah, gotta love. Gotta love. I was going to say the American spirit, but then I realized I'm not American. Well, these days, David Bowie was right. You should be afraid of Americans. We may do something stupid before you realize what we, what's going on here. Eh, I, I'm, I'm always of the school where I like to believe that humans will probably not completely destroy themselves. You think? I, I, I'm, I'm positive, but I don't know if that's just wishful thinking. Well, Misplaced I... faith in the people. Well, I, I suppose that depends how you look at it. If you're talking about one particular set of people, um, there's uh, ruins in uh, India and Pakistan, in Milo Dojo, where everybody just disappeared entirely. And it may have been for the same reason that the people who put up the uh, Moai on Easter Island did, because they just couldn't handle their environmental issues. Mm-hmm. You're talking about people in general, where, say... The Romans ultimately, after settling down, become the Franks, who ultimately become the French. Then you can make a strong argument in favor of that. Take your pick. <laughs> Here is my final question. Ah. Who's your favorite Beatle? <laughs> That's a difficult one to answer. Now, if you'd asked me a simpler question, like who's your most influential Beatle? Okay, let me rephrase that. Who's your most influential Beatle? Uh, it's very strongly John. Um, in large part because he was a great model in terms of creativity to follow. 
And he also has an interesting story in that you get to see proof that yes, human beings can evolve and change. In that you've got somebody who was a bit of a rough growing up who ultimately gets his consciousness raised as he goes along. Um, second on the list being George, who goes through a similar thing and has the added bonus of having gone deep into um, spiritualism and then taken the traits out of that and revived the British film industry single-handedly with handmade films. Mm -hmm. That's a great story, by the way. Um, there's, if you can get a chance to, the, the history of handmade films and how George basically worked with Monty Python and ultimately made British movies worth looking at again. Well, I, I know that documentary just came out like a couple weeks mm. ago, An Accidental Studio. Ah, yes. There's also a great uh, book about it, though, Very Naughty Boys, which, uh, which is wonderfully documented and goes into um, considerable detail about the the uh, rise and fall of the first iteration of Handmade. <laughs> now it's my favorite part of the show where I get to turn it over to you. Is there anything you would like to plug other than my uh, bloody Valentine? Ah, uh, well, um, other than my my bloody Valentine and a couple holes in the baseboard here, um, I do want to point out that I do have a presence at Amazon, which is where you can pick up all together now in uh, either physical or digital format. You can also pick up another work of mine, The Pirates of New York, a monograph personal history, um, popular history, excuse me, about how pirates were involved in the creation of New York City, including such characters as, including such characters as William Kidd, Sally the Goat, and special guest appearance by, a, by Al Capone. And I mentioned earlier another work which I am hoping shortly to be able to do at least a digital release um a novel of mine called red jenny and the pirates of buffalo which is a cli-fi novel about someone who's trying to stay a couple steps she makes <laughs> and people can find these on amazon yes when when you know the book is released well, but they can that, find the other well, two the other two are there um i really am pushing to do what I can to get at least a digital copy of uh, Red Jenny out shortly. Um, hopefully we'll see something on that. Jim, I just want to say this has been a really fun episode to do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I kept up with most of your $12 words as you described them. Uh, okay. The thing is, you probably didn't describe them that way, and I'm probably misremembering it. Well... To be honest with you, a couple of them I picked up on discount, and they're only about seven forty-two. <laughs> Nothing wrong with discount. Yeah, that's true. Mo my words cost an average of three forty-nine. So yeah, anything's an been, improvement here. And I've been discounted all my life, so hey. Aw, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> you're not discounted to me. You're 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 full price. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. That that's a really weird compliment, and I'm not sure if it made any sense. You take what you can get these days. You know, a compliment that doesn't make any sense is better than no compliment at all. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. You mean, and these these days, positive. people any any chance where people can be nice to each other nowadays, I'll I'll take. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
as that I, other as that other group that supposedly will be as popular as the Beatles, if not more so. Be good, be excellent to each other, and be good. Group that will Bill and Ted. Yep. The Wild Stallions. Yep. Uh, there's still time. They could still be more popular than the Beatles. Five years from oh. now, this could be a, a yeah. Wild Stallions podcast. It, well, we'll it would see. just. It would. It'll probably take me another five years to think of a, a name for the show, even though I didn't even come up with fans on the run. Well, you know, we should wait and see how September goes when the third movie finally gets released to see if it is actually worth it. Yeah. I, I'm interested to see the movie because this will be the first time I've seen Alex Winters in 30 years. Really? Yeah. Well, do you think the movie's still going to come out in September? Because everything's it's, getting pushed back. And as a matter of fact, it's... Theatrical window, as of this morning, was moved up to August 28th. Oh, so really? Limited theaters that are open uh, still out there um, are going to get it. And a week later, they'll stick with the uh, they'll stick with the announced date of September 7th for the uh, VOD um, rollout. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I just read the other day that Universal finally ended its pissing match with AMC. Yep. And everybody thought, hey, it's all good. We've got something goes here. You're charging how much for Mulan on Disney Plus? Oh, my. And, well, we're all back to where we were. The thing is, at one point, I had a bunch of streaming services, but now I, I still just have Netflix. Because I've realized mm. most of what I do in my free time is rewatch the same three seasons of Arrested Development. And that's it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that and episodes of Mr. Show, but Mr. Show is not on uh, Netflix. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, my big uh, streaming thing was when I was writing Fantasia Obscura, Amazon Prime would have a lot of these. And they were saying, you remember? Hey, watch them for free. Go ahead. And um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of genre films from mid-century out there that uh, are findable and watchable in that format. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were talking about the uh, genre films that were covered that were Beatle-related. So among the films you can find out there uh, would be How I Won the War. Mm -hmm. Another Dick Lester film. Yes, another Dick Lester film, which they... It was, it was a mistake, unfortunately, putting John in the movie. Not that John is a bad actor, but... You had this film that's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a wild fantasy with a troop, and you've got somebody who just sucks all the eyeballs away from the rest of the movie. Yeah, and I mean, you're not watching, you're not watching Gripweed on the film. You're watching John, and it makes it, uh, it just kills the film. Pity. And of course, there's Wonderwall. Um, Great soundtrack, mixed yes. film. Ah, you've seen it. <laughs> I, I, I've seen... I saw it once. Yeah, that's about all it's worth. Um, I, I will vehemently defend the soundtrack, even though it gets oh. trashed among some circles. I don't know. It's, it actually was really good. It's an example of George towards the end of his uh, his uh, willingness to work with news, with uh, Indians uh, subroutines there. And... 
of course, of course, it's the big problem with the film is that it is definitely dated because you're looking at a film where you're st you're looking at the professor and he's peeking through the wall at the young lady. If it were made today, she would be the main focus. It would say, "He keeps looking at me," and put it on Lifetime at some point. Mm -hmm. Because what what the guy does during the film? No, you don't get to do that now. I feel like that's a running theme with the movies that we've talked about now or the movies yeah. we've talked about. It's like, you can't get away with that now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course, it'd be interesting to see what happens uh, 10, 20 years from now. Uh, they'll put on a movie and say, there's hundreds of people in the same room. What are they, crazy? <laughs> the, the thing is, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure we'll ever get to that point because, well, I said I have faith in people, People are also stupid. Yep. And they'll, you know, as soon as these restrictions get, you know, eased or lifted, everyone's going to go back to not wearing a mask. Everyone's going to go back to, you know, coughing on each other. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. We got to figure that all out. Let, let's just hope it magically goes away. Hmm. Maybe, uh, maybe get people to uh, sit back, relax, realize that listening to a couple of Beatles albums will probably help uh, give them a chance to uh, feel better about themselves and say, yeah, you know, some of what they're saying, it's definitely uh, definitely worth following. And I don't care if Jerry Rubin writes, uh, if the Beatles listened to their own music, they would give away all their money, which they didn't do. And uh, But then how much did Jerry know? Hey, so... <laughs> I'm going to make a complete ass out of myself. The name sounds very familiar. Is he one of the yuppies? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he was Abby Hoffman's second in command. I was going to uh, say, was he one of those people like Abby Hoffman? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact... Talk um, about making an ass out of themselves. Yes. And, of course, he says, he's, he makes that quote in his book, Dig It, uh, where he talks about how money is not of any value. And then... When Abby disappears and goes underground, he stays around, ultimately gets influenced by Mike Milken and becomes one of the uh, masters of the universe on Wall Street in the 80s. So, no finger. And on that delightful note, Jim, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ethan. It's been a pleasure. And to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillips. This has been a Showtown production.